0: All right, I'm going to open us up in prayer. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Holy Father, we thank you for this day. And it's so wonderful to gather with your people and talk about you and contemplate you and your magnificence and your kindness to us. And we pray that you would be with us this morning and that you you would help our hearts be open to what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first two weeks, um, I've worked very hard to make everything that we're uh, talking about very practical. And today we'll do the same, but I want you to bear with me just a bit today because um, what we're going to do is, is go through the timeline, the biblical timeline, um, that really points to the main character of the story, Jesus Christ. And really this was just going to be an introduction but as I started working on the timeline, it sort of got away from me, and I realized, wow, this is just unbelievable how it all comes together. And um, so that will be today, and then next week we're gonna we're gonna circle back around, and we're gonna talk about the implications of the life of Jesus, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, the Son has accomplished. If you'll remember from the first class, uh, we're looking at this divine narrative where the Father planned the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applied. So today we're going to look at this amazing story. I just want to take you on a journey, really, from Scripture. We'll start with a couple of quotes, um, one by Francis Schaeffer and one by John Frame. Schaeffer says, What is central in the Christian message of good news, the evangel to the world? It centers in only one thing, the redemptive death of our Lord Jesus Christ. From the time of the fall and the first promise within 24 hours after the fall took place until the very end, this is the message. And then John Frame, every event in history is something that God has planned, and the planning goes back to eternity. For now, I am particularly interested in the one particular decree, the agreement between the Father and the Son, often called the Covenant of Redemption. In this covenant, before the world was even made, God the Father gave a people to His Son, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit is also a party to this agreement, for the Father and the Son agreed to send the Spirit into the world to bear witness of Christ, to teach the people about Him, and to declare them th- to, declare to them things that would come. And we want to remember, even as we're going to kind of take a little side road this morning. We still want to remember the story of Jeff and Sarah, and if you've not been here, just an overview of that case. <clears throat> it's a couple. Jeff is a man who has struggled with anger. He's been abusive in the marriage. Uh, he's, he's been repentant and humbled and has really made some progress after counseling for several months. But Sarah's still uh, very frightened of him, still very tentative about giving her heart over to him. Uh, very... Uh, very slow to allow herself to become emotionally intimate with him again, and this is creating some frustration for Jeff. Um, so we'll come back to them here here in just a, a bit so the the biblical redemptive narrative, as we stated last week, actually began before creation uh, because it was in the mind of the Trinity from all eternity. We looked at john fifteen four and five last week, where Jesus said. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, the language of Christ saying he was with the Father before the world existed. And this wonderful plan of redemption uh, was, was part of uh, the thinking of God, even before creation. And then we have creation. Uh, the first thing on the timeline in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And then we know the story. God created man in Genesis 2, 5 and 7, and He created woman in Genesis 2, 21 through 25. And then we find something very interesting in the story. Jesus speaks. Jesus um, speaks. If you know me, you know I'm a huge fan of Francis Schaeffer. His books changed my life a long time ago. And one of his books is entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. And one of the beautiful realities of being a people of God is to realize that God could have chosen to remain silent. But that wasn't part of his plan. He spoke, and he spoke to the people that he had created. And He, from my vantage point, this is really the first account of true Godly counsel that was given to humanity. Uh, my whole profession of biblical counseling rests on the idea that God has counseled his people from the very beginning. and here's what he said to Adam and Eve <clears throat> in Genesis 2:16 and 17 and the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." Genesis 2:16 and 17. And we all know what happened. The serpent came in, tempted Adam and Eve. They gave in to the temptation, and <laughs> you're okay. It's really Genesis, but I That's all right. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so, so we know what happened. Um, the great cosmic rebellion of Adam and Eve that changed everything, and then we had have the fall. But then God spoke again, and we see the mercy of God, even after this, this horrific act of Adam and Eve. Again, God could have stayed silent for centuries. But as Schaeffer articulated, within 24 hours, in his mercy, in his kindness, for Adam and Eve, he said these words in Genesis three fourteen and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So 24 hours into the fall, God the Father promised a Redeemer would come. And he would crush the enemy. And his heel would be bruised, but he would be victorious. As you move on in the story, we find the covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. Um, He said to Abraham in Genesis 12, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How's that promise? How are you a part of that promise? Any thoughts? We're the offspring. Yeah. We end up being the offspring. That's right. We end up being the offspring. Paul actually refers to this promise and and begins to uh, uses this promise to show that that. Um, the Redeemer wasn't only going to be for the Jewish people, but for all nations, including the Gentiles. He, he says in Galatians 3, 6, and 7, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it, it, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So we we see here in this covenant of Abraham um, that through him uh, all nations would be blessed. And then we come to God's covenant with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, you you hear the cadence. A Redeemer is coming. I'm sending him, and he will build an everlasting kingdom. This prophecy was reinforced by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, in verse 5. There shall come forth a shot from the stump of Jesse, which is David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah also prophesied about the crucifixion of this coming Redeemer in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and borne our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. Isaiah's prophecy of the accomplishment of Christ's work is also highlighted in verse 11 of 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, what God had foretold at the fall, he continued to communicate through the prophets, through his covenants. And he began to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ that through this Redeemer, through this coming Redeemer, many would be made righteous. And not only that, he also prophesied the coming of John the Baptist. Isaiah 43 and 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway to our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So just in these few verses and keep in mind, I'm not even hitting every verse in the Old Testament, but it's so clear that the, the thoughtful intention this is, none of this was random. The fall didn't take God by surprise. It was part of the story so that he could usher in the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and be glorified through him. We also see this spoken of in, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord of Righteousness. We also have Daniel's night vision. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days as was and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed Daniel 713 through14 and we're, we're told, or we see in Matthew 24 and 30, Jesus describes His own coming in a very similar way as what Daniel just spoke. And Jesus said this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give it its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power power. And great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And as you move on in the Old Testament, um, into the last book of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi prophesies the coming messenger who would prepare the way for the great Redeemer. Malachi uh, Malachi 3:1: Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Just in a few minutes, we looked. The Old Testament is pointing to a person. You can look at the Psalms, you see it there. You see it all throughout the scripture, and then you see types and shadows. Um. If you ever want to hear a great three-minute explanation of those types and shadows, uh, Google, The Bible's Not About You by Tim Keller. And he does a great job of of pointing to uh, all of the characters in the Bible, including David and Moses, and how all of those guys were really uh, pointing to Jesus. Uh, They were were, uh, shadows of the coming Redeemer. And from that first promise to Abraham until Jesus shows up on the scenes, 1,500 years. And between Malachi and Jesus' birth, approximately 400 years. And I think that's something for all of us in here to contemplate. That here's these promises, and they were were repeated over and over and over and over to the people of God. 1,500 years went by and nothing. And how often in our own life struggles, we know the promises. We know what God has said He is doing in and through us. But sometimes it doesn't seem like those promises are being realized. We know that God is committed to sanctifying us. He's committed to to helping us despise sin. Yet so often our hearts are drawn to the things that are sinful. And in those moments of failure to be questioning what's going on here, why isn't the promise being realized more powerfully in my own life? In this narrative where the people of God were, were given this promise 1,500 years, they never saw it. The book of Hebrews tells us that these saints proclaimed the coming Redeemer but they never witnessed his promise realized. Hebrews 11:13 and 14. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And so when we look the Old Testament and all of these saints and the people of God, they were looking forward to this Redeemer in faith that he was coming, in faith that he would accomplish everything that was preordained for him to accomplish for their sakes as they were looking forward. Then we enter into the New Testament in the book of Luke, this beautiful prophecy by Zechariah which begins to um, align with the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming messenger who would make pave the way for Christ. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of the salvation of His people, the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Luke 1, 67 through 67-78. So here we see Zechariah citing the promise to Abraham and David. He prophesies that God is now bringing His promises into operation. The time has finally come. He speaks to his son, John the Baptist, stating that he would be the one who would go before the Lord... And prepare his ways. And then in Luke 2 6, the greatest day, Jesus was born. 1500 years, the saints waited, and here he was. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her first son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And then we see John the Baptist. As he grew up preparing the way for this Redeemer. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then... And then we have Jesus arriving on the scene. And one of the things that I want to highlight is, especially as uh, kind of a prerequisite for next week, the life of Jesus was very important. Um, My friend Elise Fitzpatrick, I've often heard her say, it's not what would Jesus do, WWJD, it's what did Jesus do? That makes all the difference for us. So Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tell us that Jesus had to enter our broken world. Or chose to enter our broken world for very specific reasons. Hebrews two seventeen and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able... To help those who are being tempted. And then Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So Jesus by his own choice. Left the Trinitarian, the the heavenlies where there was perfect communion within the Trinity. And he didn't consider that a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he did so in part so that he could gain a sympathy for you and I in our fallenness, in our brokenness. He did so as well so that he would become our merciful high priest. So I want to just look at a few things that Jesus experienced That matters to us. Maybe not all of these will feel as relevant as some, but I know that all of us will connect um, to many of these things. In Philippians, let me see here. In Philippians 2, 4 through 8, Jesus refused a selfish response by not clinging to what was rightfully his within the Trinitarian relationship, but he made himself nothing. How often, in a disagreement with a friend or a spouse or a co worker, how often have we clung to the thing that we thought was rightfully ours to the point of sin? How many of us has, have stood our turf and we weren't going to back down, even if we felt uh, that maybe we were sinning, we were not going to back off. We were going to win that fight. Well, this, this passage of Jesus not clinging to what was rightfully His is very important because where we failed that test, He passed that test for us. In Matthew 4, 1 through 4, Jesus passed the test when tempted to allow food to be His God. When the devil tempted Him, He overcame that. When I'm sitting with a young girl in a counseling office who is seemingly enslaved by anorexia or bulimia, that moment for Jesus is very significant for her. Because where she orchestrates her life around food and body image and these things, where she's failing the test, he passed the test. Or how many of us, when we are anxious or stressed out, rather than run to the throne of god we run to the refrigerator and we eat simply because we're stressed as a coping mechanism jesus passed the test when tempted to take a take the faithfulness of god for granted or to test god's faithfulness when he when the devil tempted him to jump and the angels were protect him how often have we been guilty to take god's faithfulness for granted I take His faithfulness for granted every single day. But Jesus came and He knew we would struggle with that and He knew we would succumb to that and He came and He perfectly obeyed God in, that, in the midst of that temptation. He passed the test when tempted with I, the idols of riches and power and the very act of idolatry and bowing down, in refusing to bow down to Satan in Matthew 4 and 11. And later in this course, we will talk a lot about idolatry and, and what it actually is. It's not a statue so much as it is an issue of the inward heart. It's a, it's, a, it's a constant issue in the life of people. John Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. And Jesus was given opportunity to give in to idolatry, and he refused. <coughs> Thanks be to God. Jesus lived out the commands to love God and neighbor. By teaching others God's divine wisdom and way through the Beatitudes, He taught us the true nature of anger. Relational, how what godly relational reconciliation looks like. He taught us the true nature of lust. He taught us about radical amputation. If your eyes causing you to sin, pluck it out. Just meaning get away from the sin. He taught us how to biblically handle retaliation. The call of to love one's enemy to give to the needy. He taught us about fasting, forgiveness, and much more. Everything that Jesus taught us uh, was an act of love for us because it introduced us to a deeper wisdom of God. And as God was nearing his, as Christ was nearing his arrest, there's an account in the Bible where it talks about him um, taking Peter and John onto a mountain. And there uh, he was transfigured. And, who, who, who met them there? You guys remember? Moses and, Moses and Elijah. And it's a time when all Moses and Elijah representing all of these people who needed the Redeemer to come. And Peter and John representing the New Testament saints. There they were together. And Francis Schaeffer, I just want to read this. It's so amazing to me. What And he's talking about the, the, when they were there on the mountain together. What is central in the Christian message of good news, the evangel to the world, it centers in only one thing, the redemptive death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not to be surprised that Elijah and Moses, meeting with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, had this as their key topic of conversation. Quote, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake and continued to speak of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, End quote. Of course they talked about it, because they had a stake in this. It was important for them, not merely as a theological proposition, but the salvation of Moses and Elijah rested upon this single point, the coming death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. The disciples who were there that day had a stake in this too, because if Jesus had not died upon the cross, they too would have had no salvation. And let us say to each one who reads this, we have a stake in this, for there is no salvation possible to us unless Jesus died on Calvary's cross. And so we continue in the narrative. Shortly after this, Jesus was arrested and he responded perfectly to God's will When falsely accused and arrested on false charges. How often have we failed in doing that? We're falsely accused, we retaliate. We fret. Not Jesus. He exhibited flawless faith in the Father when under extreme mental and emotional duress. In Matthew 26, 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And don't take this lightly. He was God, but he was man. And in the garden, he suffered terribly, mentally and emotionally. And it's so comforting when I sit with people who are struggling mentally and emotionally for me to know that if they're believers, Christ took care of that for them. And his record of perfect response under that duress belongs to them. And it's the record by which they are judged. Jesus exercised unfathomable self-control when he chose not to call legions of angels to his rescue from going to the cross. Can you imagine how much self-control that required? He could have snapped his fingers and it would all have been over. Jesus remained perfectly faithful in loving the Father when verbally and physically abused in the most horrible way imaginable. When the soldiers were mocking him and beating him he didn't retaliate. As a matter of fact, First Peter tells us that when they did that, he, he, he refused to retaliate, but instead entrusted in himself to the one who judges justly. There are people, maybe even in this room, who have been physically and emotionally abused. And sometimes the struggles associated with that feel so despairing that you can't overcome it. And the good news for you is that Jesus entered this broken world, chose to allow himself to be abused, responded perfectly to that abuse so that anyone following him who was a believer, who was abused and struggled in that abuse, would never be condemned. Jesus' life mattered. Jesus remained perfectly obedient to the Father when he was rejected by his own people as an innocent man and was chosen for crucifixion over a murderous thug, Barabbas. John eighteen thirty three. One of the most stunning acts of obedience is when he is actually hanging on the cross. Jesus continued to live out the two great commands that he lived his entire life preaching and teaching. The sum of all the law is in two commands. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And even while he was there hanging on the cross after being brutally beaten and then while hanging in excruciating pain and agony, he continued to live out that mission. Number one, he told John to take care of his mother. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. John nineteen twenty six and 27. Hanging there dying in pain that we cannot even imagine, Jesus was concerned about loving his mother. And then secondly, he turned to a a man who had an, an entire life of criminality. And he turned to him, and he saved him on the cross. Today you'll see me in paradise. He was forgiving sins already. And then finally... In Luke 23, 34, we're told that he asked the Father to forgive those who were literally killing him. So under the most trying, stressful, agonizing experiences, Jesus remained obedient. And he did that to the glory of his Father, and he did that because he loved his Father, but he also did that because he loves you, and he cares about you. Here's something that's Very interesting. And for the person who struggles with any kind of addiction, alcohol, drugs, this is amazing. Jesus refused intoxication to alleviate the pain inherent to fulfilling the plan he was sent to do. And he drank the wine that kept him conscious to the suffering he was sent by the Father to endure. So let me explain that. David Mathis, who writes for Desiring God ministry, the ministry of John Piper, writes this. Twice Jesus was offered wine while on the cross. He refused the first but took the second. Why so? The first time came in verse 23 of Mark 15. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. William Lane explains, according to an old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain. When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused it, choosing to endure with full consciousness the suffering appointed for him. The first wine represented an offer to ease the pain to opt for a small shortcut, albeit not a major one in view of the terrible pain of the cross, but a little one nonetheless. But this offer Jesus refused and in doing so chose to endure with full consciousness the suffering appointed for him. The second time came in verse 35 after some bystanders thought he was calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down, Lane comments. A sour wine vinegar is mentioned in the Old Testament as a refreshing drink and in Greek and Roman literature as well. It is a common beverage appreciated by laborers and soldiers because it relieved thirst more effectively than water and was inexpensive. There are no examples of its use as a hostile gesture. The thought then is not of a uh, coercion, Corrosive vinegar offered as a cruel jest, but of a sour wine of the people. While the words, let us see if Elijah will come, express a doubtful expectation, the offer of the sip of wine was intended to keep Jesus conscious for as long as possible. So the first wine, mixed with myrrh, was designed to dull Jesus' pain to keep him from having to endure the cross with full consciousness. This wine was refused. And the second, sour wine, was given to him to keep conscious for as long as possible and thus have the effect of prolonging his pain. This wine, Jesus' drain. Other condemned criminals would have taken the first to ease their torment and passed on the second so as not to prolong their horrific pain, but Jesus would take no shortcuts on the way to our redemption. And I sit with many people struggling uh, who run to alcohol to escape from the pain of their lives. Jesus didn't leave that detail out in His own life at the very end. When tempted to that, he chose not to. He passed the test. Jesus lived out his own teaching in that he didn't simply extend divine love towards his enemies, but he gave his own life for their sakes. During the most epic opportunity in all of human history for a person to doubt God, as God's wrath for every single sin of every single believer was being poured out upon him, Jesus did not doubt the Father it was agonizing, Matthew 27:46, we hear him cry out, "Father, why have you forsaken me?" But Jesus in this agonizing dilemma remained relentlessly faithful to the Father. In a final expression of his love for his Father, some of the final words uttered by Jesus before his death expressed a profound sentiment of accomplishment for accomplishing a major portion of the plan he was sent to do. John 19:30. It is finished upon his resurrection. Jesus remembered a friend who had sinned against him during his most trying hours, Peter who denied him and he offered amazing grace, mercy, love and forgiveness to this man, Peter, after he had denied him. And some commentators will notice that Peter denied Jesus three times. And in this account on the shore, when Jesus restored him, he restored him three times, telling him to become a fisher of men. After the resurrection, Jesus explained to the witnesses on the road to Emmaus that the whole of the Old Testament was about him. He said in Luke 24, verses 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself, after his resurrection, goes back with these people and says, all of these stories in the Old Testament that you didn't understand, I was there and it was about me. And it was about what I was sent to do. And what I have now accomplished to the glory of my Father. Now you're also on this timeline. You're part of this story. And something very hopeful that all of us in this room can take joy in every day, every second of the day, is that Jesus currently, today, in this moment, in the moment of your worst sin, in the wo- moment of your worst doubt... In the moment when you've given yourself into pride, Jesus currently lives to intercede for every one of us in this room who believe in him. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34-35 Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We, Darwin has pointed this out before, but we can see this intercession in a beautiful song by John Wesley, where the lyrics read, Five bleeding wounds he bears received at Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let the ransom sinner die. And that's one implication for us today is that this same Jesus who was promised 24 hours after the fall, promised all throughout the Old Testament, arrived on the scene, accomplished what he was called to accomplish. This same Jesus, alive today, is interceding for us on our behalf. And one of one of the, the, the intercessions is something we'll look at next week, but... All of those tests that he passed that I just went through, he imparts that record onto you and I as though we were that obedient. That's how the Father looks at us. It's staggering. And when we move into the New Testament, you'll see all the writers are pointing back to Christ. Paul in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what Christ has accomplished. Paul's introduction to the Galatians, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The pastor's introduction to the Hebrews. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And finally, Peter's introduction in First Peter Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And if you read, obviously, the New Testament authors, they're all pointing back to Christ. And, and many of them are pointing forward to His, to His return. So if we read, and and this is a skeletal account of how the Bible is about a person, Christ. And if that's the case, how much more so should that be the narrative of our own lives? I mean, in my perspective, it's undeniable this world is about him. I think even just contemplating this story, and I thank you for being patient as I just sort of put it all in one place, this timeline, of this narrative and it being about Jesus. But if, if God took the time to give us this narrative and make it extremely clear who it was about, I pray that that would be a model for us as we live in that same narrative when I'm dealing with someone at work or I'm dealing with a child or I'm dealing with a spouse or I'm dealing with a friend, that at the end of the day, I remember this narrative has has existed from eternity past and it's not about me at the end of the day. I mean, it is about us in a way. Jesus died for us. He loves us. It's not as though we're nothings in the universe. We are His people, but we are not the main character of the story. And may the Lord help us all live to the glory of the main character, Jesus Christ, as we leave here today. Next week, we're going to come back to this story, but we're going to talk about the implications of all of these things that Jesus did. Why is it important? How do do we put it all together in terms of when we're sinning and, and obedience and all of the things that we're called to do as believers? Okay? Let me pray. Father, we are grateful just to remember this is a story we're all familiar with, but just to recall it and to see how precise you were with your plan and to see how our dear Savior entered this broken place, allowed himself to be abused and mocked and suffered and tempted for our sakes and for your glory. And we want to say this morning, thank you for sending him. We say thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing this plan for us. May we live our lives to glorify you in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.